How uh, in New Zealand do we greet each other? How do we greet each other? G'day. Yeah, what do we do? Shake hands. Yeah, what else do we do? Hug. Hug. Yeah. Some of us, some of you, into hugging. What else? Say hi. Yep. What's that? Look in the. Uh, yep. Yeah. What about um, we might uh, hongi? For Mario, might hongi? <laughs> so, what about some other ways of greeting in some other cultures? What are some other ways that other cultures greet each other? Yeah? Yeah? What cultures are those? Nepali? Yeah. Anyone else in other cultures? Kali. Kissing? Yeah, side of the cheek? Yes. Yeah, each side of the cheek? Yeah. So, any other cultures you know of? Hugs? Yeah. What in Brazil? Hugs? Hugs? Yep. Yes? All right. Yep. Cool. There's a um, tribe in uh, South America and they greet each other by spitting on each other's chests. <laughs> so you might want to turn to your neighbour and just <laughs> have a wee practice. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Um, different ways we greet each other. In uh, Tibet, you poke out your tongue. You might practice that with your neighbour too. So <laughs> that's how they greet each other, poke out your tongue. So all different forms of greeting uh, that are part of what makes up culture. And culture is quite a complex sort of thing. Uh, it's sort of a the sum total of the way a group of people do things. And there can be culture around within a church, there can be culture around uh, within an organisation, and there's culture obviously uh, in, in different nations. Um, the thing about culture is it's quite difficult to see our own culture. It's almost like we just subconsciously do things and we don't actually realise uh, the culture's like, yeah, we don't notice it until it's gone. We sort of operate within culture subconsciously. Culture sort of includes the knowledge, the beliefs, the symbols, um, the laws, the language, the habits of a group of people. It's shared by people and it's passed down through generations. Um, the, the experts sort of say that culture forms as a group of people respond to the environment. And every uh, group of people have the same issues to deal with. What do we do when someone dies? What do we do you know, uh, when someone wants to get married? Uh, how do we train our children? Uh, how do we keep the gods or God? Uh, what, what do we do in terms of uh, worship forms? So uh, it's a response uh, to all the issues that, that a, a, um, a group of people have to face. And your culture and your worldview are very closely related. So there's underlying beliefs that form your culture. Why do we tell our children not to eat off the floor? Because it's dirty. So we sleep on beds, we sit on chairs, because we have this value that the floor is dirty. 
In Japan, they believe the floor is clean. So they sit on mats on the floor. They take their shoes off at the door. Uh, they sleep on the floor. Because their value of whether the floor is dirty or not is different. In India, well, in our culture, we would say that sexual immorality is a far worse thing to do than, say, losing your temper. But in India, losing your temper is considered far worse than sexual immorality. Cultural values are different. Really important thing to understand culture because we don't all think the same way. How we read things and how we understand things is determined by our culture. I was going to show a video clip, but we don't have time today, but I found this video clip on the internet during the week about how different cultures even see something like time. You think time's time, you know? However, different cultures value and put different uh, yeah, values on time, about whether we're punctual or not, how we view time. So I think time is just universal, and yet cultures view time and interact with time differently. So as we begin to look at culture, one of the things we have to realize is that we all view everything from our own cultural lens. We just can't help it. From our own cultural lens, that's how we view things. We read about in the Bible John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist, it says, went out to the wilderness and he ate honey and locusts. So we think, well, he ate honey and locusts, little flying insects. However, in the Middle East, there's also a fruit called locust. And so when someone from the Middle East reads that passage, they think of the fruit. That's what immediately they think of. Tour guides, well, sometimes when you go to Israel, will say that actually there's this fruit called locust and that's what he ate. Now, they seem to think that probably uh, he did eat the insects, either some carbs somehow, eating honey and fruit probably <laughs> wouldn't be the best diet. Um, but it just shows that that's what they immediately think of. Uh, when they read the same passage that we read, because they're looking at it through a cultural lens. In New Zealand, we read about the parable that Jesus told about judgment, and it talks about the sheep and the goats. And at judgment time, Jesus separated the sheep and the goats. Now, in New Zealand, sheep's a sheep, goat's a goat. You wouldn't mistake them. However, in the Middle East, a sheep and a goat look very, very similar. In fact, they're hard to tell apart. So when someone, uh, Jesus' original hearers, heard this parable, it puts a whole different context on it when we understand that actually sheep and goat look virtually identical. Suddenly that changes the dynamic of that parable. It's not obvious <laughs> who's a sheep and who's a goat. Uh, it's not clear. The Inuit people, that's uh, Eskimo, uh, Inuit people, uh, they read the story of Jonah and the whale, their first thought is that Jonah was a bit of a wimp because he should have killed the whale. All right, what was he doing? Swallowed by a whale, he should have just killed it. Um, they don't think much of Jonah's skills. So we've got to understand the Bible is written about and for a people of a different culture. If we don't understand that, we can very easily make wrong interpretations. The first rule, very first rule of interpreting the Bible is what did it mean to the original people? We cannot ignore culture. Imagine again uh, talking about the Inuit people, uh, that they read in the Bible uh, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. What would an Inuit person think of that? Well, they've got no concept of a lamb. They've never seen a lamb. <laughs> They're lambs. 
or frozen ones maybe, uh, <laughs> there's no lambs in the Arctic. So when the Canadian translators in the 1990s came to the Bible passage where it talked about the Lamb of God, they had a problem. <laughs> what do you do if you've never seen a lamb? So after much arguing, they uh, translated a little seal of God. There's no point in saying lamb. They had to put it in a cultural term uh, that Inuit people uh, could understand. So it's translated, the little seal uh, of God. We view everything from our cultural lens, including how we read the Bible. And inherently, we tend to think our own culture is best and right. You know, in India, they eat food with their fingers. We think, we teach our children, don't eat, don't play with your food. <laughs> you know, don't use your fingers. Indians think, when I eat with my fingers, I've washed them. They've not been in anyone else's mouth. Where's the fork been? I don't know. Could have been in anyone's mouth. We think our parents are getting elderly, they need care, we'll put them into a good home. Many cultures... They think that's a terrible idea. Putting your parents in a home where strangers will look after them, that is awful. Quite a few years ago, I took a team to uh, Myanmar, Burma, from Eastside, and uh, we went over there at the invite of Sian, who Ros and I had trained with at Bible College. As a team, we were up t- going uptown, uh, and we sort of got to a bit of a dodgy bit of town, and I could sort of tell it was slightly more dodgy. And I was walking side by side with Sian when all of a sudden he grabbed my hand. Now, fortunately, I'd done a little bit of cultural research, but my instinctive reaction was to withdraw my hand. It's like, I don't want to hold some guy's hand. I mean, heterosexual guys don't hold guys' hands. So I had to grip my teeth um, to avoid sort of causing offence. But what Sian was doing was he was signalling to those in the street, this guy's with me. And so don't mess with him. Don't. You know, he's with me, he's okay, he's with me. Um, but it didn't feel right. <laughs> you know, the team behind, who was walking behind were just killing themselves with laughter. It was hilariously funny. Um, uh, but it just didn't feel right. Why? Because it's not our culture that guys generally wander around holding hands. We inherently think our own culture is right and best. But the reality is that all cultures have things that are good and that are bad and that are different. And that is our challenge. All culture has been affected by sin. Every culture has been impacted by sin. And so we have to evaluate our culture against the Bible. And that is challenging. So, so some tribes uh, practiced, I don't think they do anymore, but uh, including Maori, practiced cannibalism. Uh, now, we have to evaluate that practice against the Bible. We'd say that's not right. Uh, the Bible teaches that every person is made in the image of God and uh, that you know, it's against God's command to kill. So when Christianity came uh, to Maori people, uh, cannibalism uh, stopped. Maori culture has a, a value on extended family. All right, against uh, ex- extended family. Is that a, um, a good thing, a bad thing, uh, or different? Well, it's probably just different. Um, you know, Western culture puts high value on a nuclear family. Uh, it's different. Uh, it's probably more biblical than nuclear family because a nuclear family, you know, the Bible says, care for your family. In terms of Eastern culture, there was that emphasis on extended family. But there's a different 
value there. In New Zealand, we, the cross has become a symbol of Christianity. Now, a cross, if you think about it, you're hanging around your neck, basically like a gallows or an electric chair. You wouldn't normally hang such a thing around your neck, but we've redeemed, the, uh, in a sense, the symbol of the cross uh, and given it a meaning, a positive meaning. It's interesting that the, the cross never became a symbol uh, of Christianity to well past the practice had, had disappeared until it stopped, because it was just such a, a great graphic sort of image. The cross was such a shame. But we have redeemed a symbol of evil and given it meaning. So symbols have meaning only as to what a society or a culture attaches to that symbol. The symbol itself is neither good nor bad. In Tibet, as I said, it's common to poke your tongue out to greet someone. Uh, we teach our kids that's rude, don't poke your tongue out. But nothing inherently wrong with that, it's simply uh, different, it's not good nor bad. We talked about when we greet people, we look them in the eye. Uh, that's the case in European culture. In Polynesian culture, uh, when you greet someone, you look down as a sign of respect. It's not right nor wrong, it's just different. Uh, but in Polynesian culture, you look down, uh, as a, you don't look people in the eye, you look down. Uh, to show respect. Some cultures, uh, when a baby is born, it's dedicated to the gods. And we'd say, well, you know, that doesn't line up with Christian practice, but can that uh, ceremony, as it were, be redeemed? Can it be changed? Can we take some of the elements of that ceremony and change it and, and dedicate the new life, the baby, to God? A tribe burns incense. Uh, to the gods as a form of worship. Can that practice uh, in the new church be adapted? Is this wrong? Well, it's not wrong to burn incense. Uh, the question would be, is the incense helping people focus on God, or is it a reminder of something else and actually a distraction? Uh, so, so this idea of, of evaluating culture actually gets quite complex, to evaluate what's happening within a culture and seeing, is it good, is it bad, can it be adapted? Quite a challenging practice. The page missing in there, there we are. In Muslim countries, uh, they pray uh, seven times a day. Uh, the call goes out, you hear it if you're in a Muslim country, the call goes out uh, to pray seven times a day. Many Middle Eastern Christians have adapted that cultural form uh, to Christianity. It's not right nor wrong to pray seven times a day. And so they've simply adapted that same pattern. The challenge in terms of culture is that we, neither, we have to neither just accept it uncritically or reject it uh, and say, oh, well, it's all wrong of the world. Uh, we as Christians are called to redeem a culture. You can think of New Zealand culture. There's some great things about New Zealand culture in general terms. You know, Kiwis are generally generous people, they like equality and fairness, they uh, get stuck in, uh, they're hospitable, friendly. These are some characteristics of New Zealand culture. But there's other things about our culture that need to be redeemed. Kiwis have a low self-esteem, we, we tend to uh, pull people down 
that do well. We're insecure, we're materialistic, we worship sport. So there's things about our culture that need to be evaluated in the light of Christianity. And there's things about our culture that are neither good nor bad. We drive on the left, neither right nor wrong. It's just uh, what we do uh, here. So evaluating our culture is quite challenging. But we must never confuse truth with culture. The early church had a huge debate about this in Acts 15. But it was the issue that nearly split the early church. It wasn't over doctrine. It wasn't over um, uh, you know, whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Uh, the key issue that nearly split the early church was one of culture. Because the early Jews said, hang on a moment, when these non-Jews, Gentiles, come to Christ, they've got to be Jewish. Because, because well, they just have to be Jewish. Because that's the way it is. And, and so they had a huge argument about this. Should the early Christians, do they need to become Jewish and adopt Jewish patterns of behavior? The conclusion was, after much debate and prayer, no, early Christians who were Gentiles did not need to become Jews. Being a Christian did not mean adapt, adapting or adopting, sorry, uh, practices of a Jew. That was the major debate. And I think that has some implications for us today uh, when we think about biculturalism and multiculturalism. When I was a kid, uh, I was expected that we dress up to go to church. Uh, and wear your very best. That wasn't truth. It was simply the cultural practice. The Bible doesn't say you have to dress up to go to church. Hence, I'm wearing my jeans. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, you know, Christians um, have often argued about music. But music is a cultural form. Um, many of the hymns that we love and sing today were written in the 1800s. And they're actually written to pub tunes. Um, William Booth, when he was criticised about this, said, why should the devil have all the good music? So they, so they took the, uh, that's a quote from him, they, they took the pub tunes of the day, the pop songs of the day, and took their music and rewrote the words. Worship music style is not about truth, it's a cultural preference. You go to India, I've sat uh, in a worship service in India, and I don't understand this, but their music has a different scale. And it sounds terrible to our ear. It just absolutely grates. Um, I don't understand how you can have music with a different scale, but they do. Um, and it just sounds terrible to my ear. Not to their ear, but to my ear. Often churches get stuck culturally. Uh, you know, things that we do were appropriate 50 years ago, but are no longer relevant today. And so we send a message that the gospel is out of date. Sometimes as Christians, uh, you hear Christians say we're to come out of the world and we're to have a Christian culture. There is no such thing as a Christian culture, uh, per se. Um, you can't have a Christian culture. You can't escape culture. All that we do is a cultural base. We have to adapt some parts of our culture uh, and redeem parts of our culture. Uh, but there's no Christian culture, per se. Culture is part of the way, the difference in culture is part of the way that God made us the way we adapt and choose to do things. Paul said that to communicate our faith effectively and well, uh, we need to remove as many cultural barriers as possible. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 says, I've become all things, that's talking about Paul, all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. 
What he's saying is wherever he goes, he adapts to the culture that is there. And so for Christianity, it has to adapt to the culture rather than reject the culture. When the missionaries went to the Pacific Islands uh, to evangelize the Pacific Islanders, uh, they made all the islanders dress up and wear white suits and sing English hymns, which they still do today. Now, it's not wrong to wear white suits and sing hymns, but it rejected the islanders' music and rejected their, their, their way of dress. So they created a barrier. God has placed us within our culture. We, if we reject the culture we live in, we simply isolate ourselves. Um, and create barriers to anyone becoming a Christian. But if we accept the culture we live in, just as it is, and not examine it, then we're no different from anyone else. One of the challenges we have to ask ourselves is, if I was a missionary to New Zealand today, 2018, what would I do? What would I do? How would I reach Kiwis? Because we don't live in a Christian culture anymore. We have to become students of our own culture. And we have to ensure that the church doesn't create cultural barriers. As we read about in Revelation 7-9, it's a picture of heaven. And it says there'll be every tribe and every people and every race there. So heaven is multicultural. There's not a single culture in heaven. There's not a Christian culture uh, in heaven. It's multicultural. God is not Jewish. God embraces all cultures. But while we say God is not Jewish, God also, uh, when he came in human form, respected Jewish culture. Jesus came and lived as a Jew. He followed Jewish cultural customs. He didn't reject those customs, but he lived within that culture. One of the challenges, I think, as we become more uh, multicultural as a nation is it takes a lot of humility to begin to explore other worldviews and enter into other people's worlds, to be willing to let go maybe of some of our own for the sake of others, because it challenges our selfishness. We like the way we do things. But also, as we engage with other cultures, it forces us to examine why we do what we do, and whether actually our own culture is uh, Christian or not. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, the glories of heaven, humbled himself and became like a servant. That is, he entered, he left the culture of heaven, as it were, and entered into our world. Before I continue, I've um, asked our patients to come and I'm just going to ask her some questions about uh, someone who's come from another culture and uh, is living uh, here now. So, Patience, come to the front. Give her a big welcome. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, this is Patience. I see Patience from my upstairs window. Come up here. Um, uh, most days going to work, striding down uh, Devron Street there. So, Patience, um, tell us a little about uh, where you're from and how long you've been here. My name is Patience and I'm from Zimbabwe, a country in Africa. Um, I've been here close to two years. I came in July 2016. Right. Um, I'm here with my husband and my four daughters. So your husband's in prison at the moment? Yes, my husband is in prison today. <laughs> with the prison team? All right. 
he hasn't been locked up. Patience, so. what, um, what are some of the uh, obvious cultural differences that struck you when you came to New Zealand? Um, most of them are the same, um, but um, I saw differences in terms of food. You eat lighter, we eat heavier meals, okay. three per day, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Yeah, it's mostly starchy. Our breakfast would be um, bread and tea. Our lunch would be what we call sadza and a relish. Right. And our supper would be sadza or rice and a relish. Okay, so food was one of the big differences you noticed. Yes, and yep. in terms of respect, um, our younger ones don't call adults by name, um, whether relative or um, anyone, your teacher, they don't call them by name. You affix a term of respect like aunt, uncle. Um, yeah. So how would you greet, uh, how would one of your children greet, say, their grandparents? Would they use their name or? Um, grandparents would um, use the translation of grandmother, like Gogo. Okay. Grandfather would be Seguro. Okay. Yeah. But someone older, if your, your children were greeting someone older, they wouldn't call them by name. Yeah, they'd be really um, creative, go, aunt, and use their name. Okay, right. Yeah, like Aunt Jude. Aunt Jude, all right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Keith. Okay, uncle. Okay. Um, so in greeting, we also use the handshake, um, but that's followed by a pause, and then you clap your hands and say, how are you? How are you? Clap like this for children. Clap like this. How are you? Okay. How are the, how are the kids? Um, you just ask for the well-being after the handshake. Right. Okay. That's seen as very respectful. Okay. And the handshake is used for a lots of things where you would use cards, I think. Like if you had to congratulate someone, um, you would shake their hands and say, oh, congratulations on the birth of your child. Um, in terms of condolences, um, you would shake the hand of someone and say, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. So the handshake is used for a lot of things. And clapping is also used to say thank you. So if I were to give you something, clap your hands twice. Mainly in kids, like if you were to give a kid someone, it's rude to give a kid something and they just grab it from you. So if you were to give a kid something, they're supposed to clap their hands first and then receive. Okay. Yeah. What about some of the more sort of subtle differences you've noticed? I mean, there are some obvious sort of food and some of this uh, readings. What about some of the sort of subtle differences in terms of attitudes or values? Um, in terms of dressing, I think um, the main appearances, maybe the men keep their hair very short. Um, men with long hair are looked at with suspicion. Okay. Um, so yeah, they're supposed to keep their hair very short and... Do I need a haircut? <laughs> no, it's okay for you. Okay. Um, they, they don't really go bold, but really long hair. <laughs> <laughs> and then men don't wear hats indoors. 
Okay. Um, they can't be two roots in one place. A hat is seen as a root. So if you're a man, you take your hat off when you get indoors and then you put it back on um, when you get out. And then we have some other relationships which have stricter, I don't know, the relationship is treated with more seriousness like me and my father-in-law keep a respectful distance. My husband and my, so my personal mom. space, you mean? Yes, in terms something of you, like that. How close do you get to someone? Yes, and okay. um, yeah, something like that. Um, everyone has a place of origin, so I could stay in the city, but I would have a rural home where we come from, and our ancestors are buried there, and the elderly stay there, and yeah, no one goes into old age homes. People look after each other within families, so there's a lot of responsibility. Um, you look after your extended family, so you just can't be doing well by yourself. Like, you know, you and your family, you are you are all fine and well catered for when your extended families and doing so well, people will look down upon you if you're like that. Right, okay. Yeah, um, in terms of dating, that's very different. I cannot know who my daughter is dating, that's up to the aunties and aunts. Um, it's not respectful for me, to, for my daughter to flaunt her relationship. Um, With for you? me to know about it, yeah. So aunties and uncles, literally, literal aunties and uncles. And friends, yeah. And friends. I wouldn't know about it. I should know about it when it's really serious. Okay. <laughs> um, alcohol and smoking is looked down upon. Um, not that people don't drink alcohol and people don't smoke, but mainly it's looked down upon. So most of the women actually don't drink alcohol and they don't smoke. Okay. Um, here you all can't really tell your social standing, but back at home people gauge you socially, like um, here's someone asking, oh, where, you, where do your kids go to school? Or, um, oh, where do you work? Immediately they'll gauge you, or where do you stay? Immediately they gauge you socially. So, okay. yeah, the better off you are, the more respect you get. And I left out on funerals. Um, we do our funerals in our homes. People gather at the home of the deceased. Um, so from the day the person passes away, people go to their home and everything is done there. People cook meals. So everyone who comes, comes with something as a donation. Right. Yeah. So it's a communal thing. And then people disperse after the burial. And um, our bodies, like for the person who is deceased, lies in state okay. for one night, just the night before the burial. Right. Okay. Like they'll be saying, they're saying bye-bye to the house. Right. to everyone as they lie in state. Okay. What, yeah. what do you miss most about um, from Zimbabwe? Um, I think some of the food. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of fruit, um, mangoes. I haven't seen much of those here. Um, mangoes and maize. Maize. Yeah, not corn. Maize. Maize. Okay. Yeah, and did I write it? That one. What do you miss most? Oh, yeah. oh and um, the just the many gatherings that we have, um, weddings, people dance and have fun at weddings and church conferences. We had lots of those. Okay. Yeah. 
What's been the most um, What's been the most difficult cultural thing to get used to? <laughs> Anything that's been the most difficult? Um, not really. It's there's this um, what do you call it rights and personal status thing that you okay. kind of have. Um, back at home, you don't have to tell someone that I'm coming to your house. Right. You just rock it up at the door. <laughs> okay. <and Yeah. laughs> if you find them there, that, that's fine. If you don't find them there, you can just let them know, oh, I came by, passed by your place. Okay, it's, right. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not getting into someone's personal space. It's actually showing love um, that, oh, they've, they've thought come. of me, so right. that's why you visited me. That's how we take it. Yeah, so we don't okay. do so much of appointments at so much precaution. And okay. because most people are Christians, you don't have to say, oh, can I pray for you? If someone tells you, oh, I'm going through this, you can just oh, let me pray for you. You don't say, can I pray for you? Okay, yeah. Automatically, we just assume everyone is a Christian. Okay. Um, how would you, what would be, if you were to use some sort of describing words to describe sort of Zimbabwean culture, how would you describe Zimbabwean culture? Um, I think the Zimbabweans are friendly, um, trusting, um, and very, um, like you support your own. Caring? Like allegiance, like, um, I'll be loyal to my family a lot. Okay, right. Something like that, yeah. Okay. So strong sort of family loyalty. Yes. Right, okay. So as you've come in um, patients to New Zealand culture, what's your observations of how you describe New Zealand culture? I think it's great. The people are friendly, accommodating, trusting. At times I would think too trusting. (laughs) I fear, yeah, I fear for some of the trust that Oh, maybe you should be a little bit more precautious. Okay. But then I guess it's because you just see people as good people, but then not everyone is really good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, people love food. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For us, a meal is just a meal. You have rice and stew, but I see lots of care, like when people describe food, oh, I had this with a dash of this, and (laughs) (laughs) there's so much emphasis on that. It's really good. (laughs) So what do you think we as Kiwis could learn from Zimbabwean culture? I couldn't answer that one. (laughs) Okay. It's blank. (laughs) (laughs) It's blank, okay. (laughs) Because I just think... uh, there isn't much you could learn that you're not already doing, I think, yeah. in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. So as someone who's come in from a different culture into Invercargill and to ICBC, what are some things that have been helpful to help you adjust? What are some things um, that you would say, yeah, are useful for us to learn in terms of helping someone from a different culture um, feel part of uh, here? Um. I think you've already said it when you were first talking. Um, I'll read a quote that I once read. I did a paper on worldview. Mm-hmm. So, um, individual persons are the product of their cultures. That is, we are not essentially unique individuals created 
in the image of God. We are created in the image of God, but what we um, manifest is the culture that surrounds us. Right. Um, yeah. So whilst we are created in the image of God, what we probably manifest is the culture that surrounds us. So I think as a church, it's important for us to understand the different cultures, um, because you can't shun or like say, I'm not going to be cultural. But I think it's important to understand the different cultures so that you can rectify or correct where the culture leads someone to sin or where you can see that um, someone is losing their faith because of a culture. Um, yeah, for instance, back at home, um, people seek prayer a lot from, from prophets, people who they think are more spiritually connected to God. So that shows a bit of lack of faith. So when you know that someone is like that, I'm always coming to you, oh, Keith, can you please pray for me? I'm going for an interview. Not that it's bad, but I think it's bad when actually someone relies on someone else to pray for them that much. So when you know that that is in that person's culture, I guess you can can only speak um, to say, oh, do you know you can actually pray by yourself and God will hear your prayers? Right. So again, you can only know that if you ask and search on the person's culture or maybe uh, explore what their cultures are. Okay. That's what I think. Okay. So how can we uh, get better at, um, uh, yeah, I suppose at um, welcoming other cultures into our midst? Uh, your experience of coming here, um, what have been things that have helped you uh, to feel part of here? Or um, For me, I guess, um, when I came, I got involved in a group. And it was a more intimate, smaller group, and right. could talk about anything. And we did lots of stuff together at Hapsod Grove for lunch. And then now, as you see, oh, this is what takes place. <laughs> and then one time we went to Mary's home. Right. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's how people live. And yeah, so we did a lot of things together. We prayed together. And okay. yeah, we did a lot of stuff together. So that kind of showed me how you guys lived and. I guess that also, they also gleaned into some of my weird ways of doing things. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. as a church, probably it would be difficult to get around everyone's culture, but I think in the small groups, right. we'll be able to glean more of other people's mm. culture. And thank you, patients. We love having you here with your family. So, give her a clap. So, thank you. So. As uh, we come to communion this morning, I just want to share one or two insights from uh, the uh, culture uh, in which um, communion originated, which is Jewish culture. Um, because to fully understand the significance of communion, we actually need to set it back within that culture. We understand that uh, Jesus, before he died, was celebrating the Passover. And the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, which is one of their festivals, almost um, happened at the same time. Uh, the Passover was sacrificed on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, but it was eaten, so it was prepared uh, on the day, but eaten after sunset. Now, for a Jew, a new day starts after sunset. And uh, so, in a sense, it's eaten on the 15th. And which is the day that the Feast of Unleavened Bread um, 
starts. So the Passover and Unleavened Bread Festival are happening simultaneously. So when Jesus broke uh, the bread at the Passover, it would have been unleavened bread. There would have been no yeast in it. And you say, well, what's so bad about yeast? Well, in ancient times, uh, they made bread by taking a little bit of old yeast and putting it in the new bread. Uh, and so the old yeast fermented the new. Um, and for a Jew, yeast represented human pride and hypocrisy. So the leaven uh, was a symbol of sin. So you might say, well, hang on a moment. Isn't the unleavened bread the fact that uh, they didn't have time to put leaven in it before uh, the people of Israel were fleeing from Egypt? Uh, and that's true too. So, so, so you've got this multiple imagery going on. So when Jesus held up the bread and said, this is my body, uh, one of the things, because it was unleavened bread, this is obviously not unleavened bread, but it was unleavened bread, uh, what he's saying is that this is bread without decay. So what he's saying is when he said, uh, you know, this is my body, this is, represents me, he's saying, I haven't been infected with human sin. It's exactly what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about uh, yeast uh, being like sin. Deuteronomy 16.3 also says that uh, unleavened bread is a symbol of affliction. And so when he said, this is my body, it also represents Jesus' suffering, and the Jews would have understood that. There's another meaning as well that uh, Jews understand that, that we don't really understand, and that is when Jesus said, this is my body, uh, which is given or broken for you, and he broke a piece off, the piece that's broken off is called the Afrikaman. So the piece that's broken off the, the main life is called the Afrikaman. And this still happens for Jews today, that when they celebrate Passover, they break off a piece and they hide that piece. Uh, and then at the end of the meal, it's brought out again. And there's very explanations given as to why, but um, sometimes they talk about uh, keeping the kids awake or whoever finds the hidden piece gets a prize. But in Jesus' time, the Afrikaman referred to the coming Messiah. So the tradition was that the bread as a whole represented all of Israel. The Messiah was broken off and hidden away until the right time. At the end of the meal, it was produced as symbolic of the coming of the Messiah. Now, because the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they've changed the tradition, and they give some other reasons why this piece is not produced until the end. But when Jesus broke the bread and held up and said, this is my body, it's making a very clear statement that I am the Messiah. It's not hidden. I am the Messiah. This piece that was hidden is not hidden anymore. This, I am the coming one. So there's some very powerful imagery going on that we don't fully appreciate until we can enter a Jewish worldview. Jesus not only entered our world, but he entered one particular culture, and he worked within that culture. Now, our, our heritage is not Jewish. It's English, it's Maori, it's Filipino, it's Brazilian, it's Zimbabwean, it's whatever. But God doesn't want you to reject your culture. God wants to work within your culture for his glory. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then after the supper, he said, this drink represents a new covenant between God and people. I'm going to ask the communion team to come and hand around the elements this morning. Just ask you to hang on to the elements, and um, we will 
uh, eat them together as a symbol of the fact that all races will come together in a time.